Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, look, I know folks like to rag on boxing, claiming it's a corrupt and dirty business. You know, just because... Well, it is. But I've actually been finding some solace over the past week or so uh, in the fact that apparently it seems that compared to some other sports and activities, it actually seems kind of totally above board. Um, There was this case that you must know about. It was this poker player who went all in on a weak hand and won a small fortune, leading to accusations she was somehow getting signals via a secret decoder ring or something. Um, The world's chess champion, Magnus Carlsen, stormed out of a match asserting that an American rival is a serial cheat who's also somehow receiving signals from outside. And, and then there was this incredible footage that I posted on, on Twitter um, uh, of competitive fishers, uh, these guys who've won hundreds of thousands of dollars and even boats. And they were found to be stuffing lead weights and even fillets of other fish into the fish that they'd caught to make them heavier. And in the, the video, you can see their rivals like screaming at them with absolute fury as someone cuts open the fish they've caught and is plopping the weights in a tub. Um, that made me think, you know what, man? It feels good to be working in a clean, above-board sport, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Uh, you know, I, boxing is in danger of falling out of the top five dirtiest sports if it isn't <laughs> careful, or, or if it is careful, I guess. Uh, right. It would be, yeah. Uh, that fishing footage, that was outrageous, of course, but quite hilarious you know as long as you weren't one of the people who's been screwed over by the cheaters but yeah when, when they pulled out another piece of fish inside that was, the fish that was it that doesn't it get me. any better than that yeah <laughs> now as far as i know uh, javier capetillo wasn't involved in loading the fish but i have some inquiries out i will report back once i know for sure on that one uh, there you go. You see, that's the beauty of boxing. Like, it's, no matter how dirty or disgusting something else is, there's always a boxing analog that we can bring in. <laughs> yes. Uh, bless. Well, and we're, we're going to have a little bit of discussion about the corruption in boxing later on, but there's lots of other good stuff to cover as well um, this week on the podcast. Even though we're coming off a weekend with zero U.S. televised fights, we still have plenty to talk about. We'll preview a Showtime Championship boxing triple header. Headlined by our unofficial third host, we can call him now, Sebastian Fundora. <laughs> um, we'll also look ahead to the Chris Eubank Jr. Connor Ben catchweight fight in London. Um, to get back to our earlier point, we will cover news potentially about the end of Olympic boxing. And Eric will count down the all-time top five lightweights. But we'll begin this week with our guest. And we welcome a familiar guest. He is the president of sports and event programming for Showtime. Stephen Espinoza. Stephen, welcome back, and thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Hey, guys, how are you? Good, Doing good, thank right. you. So before we get into talk about the current Showtime boxing landscape and maybe a certain major fight that you're possibly sick of fielding questions about, <laughs> uh, we wanted to start by noting that all this month we're recognizing Hispanic Heritage Month. And I don't know that in our various times interviewing you for the podcast, we've ever asked you what it's meant to you to rise to your position as a network sports executive high on any list for the past decade of the most powerful people in boxing while representing Latinos, which let's face it, have long been underrepresented in positions such as these. So to what extent was that on your mind when Showtime hired you or, or is still on your mind today? The fact that you represent the Mexican people or, or all of Hispanic culture in a high profile way. Yeah. You, you, you know, um, you're right. It is something that, that occurs to me and, and, and I'll get 
go get to the personal meeting of it um, a little bit, but sort of in a general point, you know, it is it is pretty um, it's a it's a stark reality when you look at a sport like like boxing that um, over the years has always you know had a very diverse participant base, and over the last you know 30, 40 years. Um, particularly, uh, you know, has had a, a large influence of Mexican fighters, Latino fighters, you know, black fighters, um, you know, and, you know, arguably, you know, overall the combat sports in general and boxing in particular, you're probably more international than any other sport. Um, but there's been a stark distinction between sort of the participants in the sport and, and the power brokers in the sport. Um, and, you know, you saw that at the promoter level. Um, which was, you know, really first addressed by, you know, by Golden Boy Promotions and Oscar mm -hmm. De La Hoya, you know, becoming, you know, the first Latino um, boxing promoter of, a, you know, a Latino owner of a major boxing promotion. Um, and to think that it would be all the way roughly to 2000 um, before that happened, you know, given the makeup of the sport, particularly over the last 30 or 40 years, is, is pretty surprising, you know, and, and then you look at the executive ranks, um, you know, a similar thing. And it's not, it's not unique to combat sports. Um, you know, there isn't a lot of representation in sports television in general. Um, and as a general comment, that is a really, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a really stark reality there too. Um, because again, whether it's major league baseball or the NBA, the NFL, um, you know, when you look at sports television in, in general, there's a there's a real, you know, a, a stark difference between you know the people who make up um, the participants in the sport and those who not just uh, arrange the sport and are in charge of the sport, but those who are in charge of televising the sport. And it just, you know, one is a, a very diverse makeup and the other is is not at all that. Um, but again, in, in combat sports, yeah, it it is. Um, it is a source of pride. It is something that uh, that I I never forget. Um, that you know I'm I'm in this position, um, and it's a it's a a rare opportunity um, for someone with my background to be involved. You know at at the the highest levels of the sport and help hopefully shape the sport for the good of everybody. Um, on a personal level, and you know I think you guys uh, we have talked about this maybe early on when I first started, um, you know, it was, it was my grandfather, my grandpa, who really was um, the one who ingrained in me the love of the sport, you know, and he was a Mexican immigrant, came uh, to the U.S., um, you know, roughly around the time of the Great Depression, um, and, and started as a, um, as a miner in the silver mines of southern New Mexico, um, and, you know, those are, you know, I have to tell you, are pretty modest beginnings, um, you know, the famous story, and I think all immigrant families, um, have a story like this, you know, for us, it was, you know, he came over here with literally seven cents in his pocket, um, and started working the silver mines in Southern New Mexico and, and ascended to there and, and candidly, uh, look, you know, a, a generation later, he had two daughters who were lawyers, an army colonel, uh, a registered nurse and another health professional. And then a generation after that, um, you know, a, an attorney and, and, and someone, you know, at the highest levels of sports television. So, um, you know, it's, it's really personally meaningful to me because I knew how much of a boxing fan my grandfather was. Um, 
and and I think I've, I've said to you guys before, he he really um, strangely um, when you look at sort of the the Mexican uh, sports following um, wasn't into soccer, wasn't into baseball. Um, he was into two things: um, boxing and, and Dallas Cowboys football. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and here I am, you know, um, you know, coming up on a hundred years after he immigrated. Um, and those two things are still sort of the core of my sports fandom, um, mm-hmm. boxing and, and Dallas Cowboys football. Hmm. Just curious, what, was he still alive when you started working in boxing? Um, he, he was. Um, okay. You know, it, it, it's funny. Um, uh, you know, it's a cliche, but, you know, like many cliches, they have an element of truth. Um, you know, my, my grandma and grandpa had, you know, a corner of the living room where they had you know, family pictures, um, and, uh, you know, and then there was sort of, depending on sort of what portion of the wall, it was either family or it was sort of icons, um, you know, and there's Jesus and there's, uh, you know, uh, Cesar Chavez. And uh, shortly after I started working with Oscar, Oscar made his way up <laughs> to, to do that one. So it's pretty, pretty good company to be up there with, you know, with Dolores Huerta, with Cedar Chavez, with Jesus Christ, and and all. <laughs> so yes, he was there, and and he did unfortunately he did um, pass away in 2012, um, but he was um, able to you know see me rise to this position, and he was very very proud, and it obviously was very meaningful to me. Amazingly, as you sort of touched on there, it's been I can't believe where the time's gone, but it's been 11 years since you since you mm-hmm. took this job, and. You know, obviously, as you mentioned, you weren't new to boxing. You'd worked with Oscar and, and with Golden Boy, amongst others. But I'm curious about, as you as you look back on it, whether anything has really surprised you over those 11 years that you weren't expecting. And what have been the biggest changes that you've had to deal with, both in terms of boxing and broadcasting? You know, it, it, it's really been an interesting progress because I, I would say that probably over the last 10 years is... Um, just in terms of sports in general, we've seen more change across the sports, uh, the sport of boxing and sports in general than, than arguably any era before. And whether it's um, you know, the rise of social media and the empowerment of the athlete and the ability of the athlete to take um, his own future into his own hands and whether it's sort of uh, becoming his own promoter like Oscar did, like Floyd did, like others, have done, or whether it's, you know, you, you see in the NBA, whether it's, you know, super teams or, or players really, um, you know, taking steps to, to proactively determine their careers and, you know, less being acted upon, but, you know, more of being actors themselves, not, not acted upon. And, you know, in, in, in the, the sport of boxing, you know, you've seen, um, you've seen tremendous change. I mean, if we look back, 30, 40 years ago, or maybe even 15, 20 years ago, um, you relied on a promoter and the traditional media to be able to make a name for yourself. I mean, you were, if you were a young boxer or an established boxer, you know, there were two conduits to your fan base. One was your promoter and, and, and how he, what he or she did for you in terms of helping get you out there and setting up meetings, greets and appearances. And the other was, was, you know, your relationship with traditional media. Um, and then obviously social media comes along and upends all of that and gives athletes of all kinds an ability to connect directly to their audience 
um, without a middleman, without the middleman of the traditional journalist, without the middleman of a promoter. And you've seen everyone from uh, Floyd Mayweather to you know others, uh, Floyd probably being the best case, who have used social media to really enhance their, um, not just their earnings, but their celebrity value and awareness. And we probably come full, full circle such that now it's not, you know, boxers using uh, social media, you know, to enhance it. It's, you know, it's you know, social media influencers using social media <laughs> to get an entree into boxing. So that's a, a pretty stark difference um, mm. in the span of, of just about 10 years. Mm. All right. Enough beating around the bush. Uh, there have been. Um... Thank you for waiting eleven minutes. <laughs> we, wanted, we, wanted, we wanted to let you warm up a little, get you relaxed, and then uh, and then here comes the haymaker. Uh, okay, great. So yeah, so there have been various reports about uh, Spence versus Crawford. You know, it's close. It's not close. It might be November nineteenth. It might be later. Very little sourcing in any of these reports is clearly defined. I don't know exactly what you're at liberty to say while negotiations are presumably ongoing, but. It's Saturday afternoon as we record this. Is there something you can share about where this stands? Um, sure. Um, not a whole lot. We, we sort of all um, going into this process, uh, maybe not all of us, but um, certainly a good chunk of people involved in the process sort of uh, made a pact that you know, we were not going to air things publicly. And I, I guess we'll see whether that was a, a positive or a negative thing. Um, I think in general, I know it's frustrating to the fans, but I think um, it, it probably, in, uh, I think it's helped the process and notwithstanding what's been reported over the last couple of weeks, I think, you know, not having a daily deluge or, you know, drips and drabs of, you know, he said, she said coming out, um, clouding the negotiation and getting ego involved is, is, is a, a positive thing. Having said that, I know fans are frustrated. I know it, it seems like it's been going on forever. Um, I, you know, the first thing in terms of, you know, what's being reported, um, this is a situation where, you know, there are generally one or two people talking and, you know, there isn't an ability for, uh, for writers, for journalists to, you know, really vet anything, you know, and get both sides. So what you're getting is a very incomplete piece. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, the, uh, the, the metaphor about, you know, the, you know, uh, the blind men in the room with an elephant. And, you know, it's sort of like, okay, yeah, that's one little piece of it. And from when you're hearing from one person, that may be their perception of it, but you hear from everybody else involved and that's just one piece of it. And there's a, a lot more. So, you know, you know, was it done? You know, is it now in danger? I, I you know, where I come from, and it, it may be a little bit from my background as an attorney, it's it sort of, it's either done or not done. <laughs> you know, saying stuff like there's an agreement in principle. I don't even know what that is. Like, you know, you either have an agreement that's enforceable or you don't. So having an agreement in, in, in principle is sort of like, what does that get you? Like, uh, it, it doesn't. Like an agreement in principle means, okay, we're getting close. So whoever wrote that story could have said, okay, we're getting close. Or, you know, some of the deal terms of that. But, you know, the devil is in the details. Um, and, you know, what to some people may be um, contractual details, um, you know, as again, as a former lawyer, I take major issue that contractual details are also known by another term, deal points. Right. <laughs> so it's sort of like, 
okay, you've got to work out some language in the contract. That's not just, you know, commas and exclamation points. It's actual substantive details. So look, like any negotiation, at some point it moves quickly. Sometimes it, it doesn't. At some points there are some disagreements, uh, sometimes heated. Uh, but look, uh, I'm pleased to say that, you know, discussions are ongoing. Um, that, you know, I, I'm just as optimistic as, as I've been over the last few weeks that this will get done. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I think this, you know, it makes too much sense and you have two fighters that, that want the fight. So, you know, there, there will be a way, there will be a way. I, I think the latest reports about, you know, disagreements are, um, you know, I, I don't want to too much detail, but I would take issue with a lot of the assumptions that are being made and a lot of conclusions are being made. Um, is it a major sticking point? I'm, you know, I'm sure those are, you know, uh, strongly held um, beliefs and desires um, by respective sides. Is it a sign that this thing can't get done or it's falling apart? No, you know, not at all. Um, so I, I can't, I, I wish like everyone else that these things would bit could get you know, done overnight. Um, this one's taking longer than people wanted, but um, it's still on track and I'm still optimistic it'll get done. Okay, and and quickly, if I subbed out the names Spencer Crawford and subbed in the names Tank Davis and Ryan Garcia, is the answer similar? Uh, or can you say a little bit, little bit um, more specifics about where that stands? Yeah, look, um, you know, there, there are conversations there. I mean, look, there's a, um, you know, the, the elephant in the room to repeat the, the <laughs> metaphor again. Um, a lot of elephants on the podcast yeah, this week. Yeah. Uh, you know, on, on that one, it's, um, you know, it's networks. Um, I, you know, there's um, their deal terms to be worked out between the, the parties, but obviously, you know, a big part of it is, um, you know, is the networks from our perspective, you know, it should be a showtime fight, you know, and, and you know, that's what we think is, is appropriate. Um, but you know, at, at the end of the day, um, you know that's uh, that's something I think that that will be resolved, and and I'm optimistic that can happen as well. I mean that that is we don't have that barrier in Spence Crawford, so I, I'd say I'm a little bit more optimistic um, on that one than than Davis Garcia, but that doesn't mean that Davis Garcia you know can't be made. All right. Let's move on to a fight we know is going to happen at Showtime. Uh, this coming Saturday, Sebastian Fondora headlines against Carlos Ocampo in uh, Car Carson, California. Uh, both Eric and I, I think, were a little bit surprised by the emphatic nature, ultimately, of, of Fondora's last win against Erickson Lubin. He's proven, I think, now that he's a very serious contender. He's not just a novelty. And, and we can attest to the fact we've had him on the podcast a bunch of times. He's a great guy as well. Um, how far do you think he can go, both in the ring and in terms of star power? He's he's a um, a really likable kid. You guys have talked to him. Um, it's a little bit of um, you know he's got the Clark Kent look. Um, you know, <laughs> at some points, um, you know, um, and I, I that you know causes people between that and his his obviously very slender frame causes people to you know maybe you doubt him. I don't think anyone will be doubting him or questioning his ability after the last fight. Um, you know, because that's as, as brutal a fight as you will see um, in the sport. I mean, give and take back and forth. So if you thought that he was, um, you know, he was a, sort of a novelty because of his height and his weight and things like that, I, look, 
he's he's clearly moved past that and he's even answered some of the questions when you look at at, at some other fighters like him i mean i think the, the one that that is the most obvious is paul williams um but what you didn't see notwithstanding you know some of uh you know some of the knockouts that paul had um you didn't really see the kind of power um that that we saw you know that we saw i think in in the fundora fight we didn't see that kind of physically dominating um performance uh, as much for paul as we see from fundora i mean certainly paul had his uh, he had dominating performances but he was also very much a technician who relied on the jab and movement and boxing skill you know clearly fundora is somebody who looks like he should be a jab and move guy um but he loves to fight inside and i think that's one of the things that probably gives him a really high ceiling is that he stylistically he's always in entertaining fights um so i, I think he's um he's as good as anybody in the division I, I you know he can be competitive with anybody in the division and you know he's got a great combination of of physical skills um you know physical qualities which make him hard to take on um and he's clearly um he's clearly on the way up. So look, I, I think the sky's the limit for him. So the other notable event on the Showtime schedule for October, uh, you, you mentioned the uh, people using social media to, uh, to then leapfrog into boxing. And so we got Jake Paul against Anderson Silva. And we talked to Brian Campbell recently. He knows a lot more about Silva than either of us do. And he actually views Jake Paul as the underdog here. Um, but let's say Jake Paul does win this. Uh, there has been talk bubbling up a bit this week with Floyd Mayweather continuing to schedule his exhibition bouts about Floyd against Jake Paul in the near future. How much does that interest you? How huge an event could Jake Paul versus Floyd Mayweather potentially be? Look, I, I think um, I think Jake's got a lot of really interesting options. I mean, Floyd is obviously a, a, a massive opportunity. Um, and um, look, there's some you know great back and forth going on already. Um, but there, there's others. I mean, you know, there's been conversations linking uh, linking Jake to, um, to Nate Diaz as well. Um, and I think, you know, both of those are, are monster events, you know, which bring that crossover audience, um, you know, to both of them, uh, you know, like the Silva event. So, um, whether it's Floyd, whether it's, um, you know, Nate Diaz or whether others, um, look, I, I think, you know, we, we can't overlook Anderson Silva. I, you know, I agree with Brian Campbell. Uh, I think if I, if I had to, I'll pick a favorite. It would probably be um, the guy who is, you know, one of, if not the best MMA fighter in the history of the sport, one of the best strikers we've ever seen in the sport, and a guy who seems to be, you know, really at the top of his game physically despite his age. So I would, I would probably tab Azure Sola as as the favorite as well. Which, look, um, I know one of the things that Jake wanted to um, cross off the list was to get in the ring with a with an established boxer um now you know he he did his best and for reasons outside of his control you know that didn't happen um i still think he's going to go back that way at some point but you know failing this you can't um you can't say he's not taking on challenges mm-hmm. you know he's a, and and i think you know i think he he, he could have been an underdog in the rockman fight he definitely to me is an underdog in the Silva fight he may be he's probably an underdog in those other two fights um, you know, the other fight and probably a, a Nate Diaz fight as well. 
So look, you can't fault him for not taking on challenges. You know, that is certainly something that he continues to do. Yeah. Um, to wrap this up, I had a couple of questions I wanted to expand a little bit, go just beyond boxing. Um, there was a report in Variety a couple of days ago, quoting our buddy and boss, Brian Daly, talking mm -hmm. about the expansion of the Showtime basketball vertical. You, you've hired Rachel Nichols for me of ESPN, for example, and all the smoke is just doing fabulously well. Um, how different and, and what are the challenges to being a player in a sport where you don't have the tent pole of live event programming at all? Um, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, and, uh, you know, I think where we have um, found our lane is, uh, you know, in the freedom that not being a right holder, rights holder does provide us. You know, um, obviously we have relationships with, you know, with, with all the leagues and we're not trying to burn any bridges. But again, we don't have you know, a rights holder type relationship um, with the NBA um, or with any, anything outside of combat sports for that matter. So it does give us some freedom. And I think, you know, people appreciate that in this media market. The audience appreciates, you know, fully um, no holds barred um, commentary. And, and it's not just the absence of sort of being a rights holder that enables it. It's also the choice of, of who you have commentating. So when you start with Matt Barnes, Stephen Jackson, and you add in a Paul Pierce, you add in, um, uh, you know, KG um, and, and, and others, you know, and Rachel, who's always been, um, you know, very candid, you know, with her. I think that that's the brand, whether it's, you know, documentaries, whether it's combat sports, whether it's other sports coverage, we want to be known for unfiltered, no holds barred conversation. That doesn't mean we're gravitating towards scandal. But it's, you know, we are giving you the real inside scoop. Um, and the final sort of question, you know, we touched earlier on about how you know, broadcasting like boxing has, has changed a lot. Um, obviously, the, the whole industry is tremendously in flux. There was a report recently that Paramount's considering even ditching the Showtime brand and just moving all the Showtime content to Paramount+. Plus. Can you speak to that? Is, is that just the rumor that's going around? And also sort of more broadly... Can you reassure people who are listening that whatever happens, do you feel that from the higher ups at the corporate level, there's still that commitment to boxing and to boxing programming? Uh, well, look, um, on, on the last point, um, absolutely. You know, I, I get, I get, you know, called weekly from our, uh, our CEO um, asking, hey, you know, the same question everyone else is asking, um, how is the <laughs> going? You know, are we going to be able to get, you know, Tank versus Ryan done? Um, and it, that, that is a, um, that's a, it's, it's a great thing. It's a privilege to have a CEO who not only sees the value, but is, is invested in it, you know, and actually likes it and, and sees it. Like, so, um, you know, there's a, there's a reason why, you know, we've stayed in the sport and that's because, you know, the numbers for the South, it drives business for us. It drives, um, the, not just the pay-per-view you know business but it, it drives subscription business on the network and and is a, an important piece of the mosaic of showtime programming look in the long run in terms of the future of showtime um look it, it, it's interesting these types of deals um and they happen every few years um, where you've got to negotiate a carriage deal with someone um whether it's a cable company or satellite company you know these are multi-year deals five six years or more um and when you do something like that, again, speaking as a former attorney, um, you know, think about you know, the last deal we might have done with a particular distributor would have been maybe 2016 or 15. 
and to think about how much the market has changed from then to now, um, as again, as a lawyer, what I if I were negotiating these deals, um, that's sort of the kind of thing that keeps you up at night because you're going to be locked into this agreement, this agreement for the next, you know, maybe six years, you know, maybe longer, and you've got to, as a lawyer, come up with every potential thing which might happen over the next years. Now, whether it will happen or won't happen, who knows? I mean, we, all of us might be bought by Apple or by Amazon and everything changes. Like, you know, who, who knows? I'm using that as an example. I don't know that either one of those is happening. But um, the reality is, you know, then stuff gets taken out of context. You know, people are looking for flexibility in their deals and like trying to cover all the hypotheticals. And when you get a story like that that comes out, then, you know, sometimes it's, it's misinterpreted. So, um, it, you know, certainly um, Showtime is doing extremely well uh, in terms of, you know, as a standalone business. Um, it's, a, it's a really good complement to Paramount Plus. We just launched the bundle where you can subscribe to both at the time. Um, that's not something you do if you're looking to combine the services. That would be a massive waste of resources. So I don't know where things are in five or six years, but I know I'm, I'm very comfortable with you know where network business is now and and how the network values combat sports. Fascinating time to be in the broadcast business, isn't it? I mean, like everything's changing so rapidly. It must be incredibly stressful, but very exciting all at the same time. It, it is, and then you look at you know stuff like Amazon paying you know a billion dollars over the next ten years for one game a week, um, and like I, you know, it's clear that more change is coming. You know, and it's it's an exciting and interesting time to be in sports media. And, and the poll quote for the people to use on social media, if I heard you correctly, is that Stephen Espinosa says Showtime to be bought by both Apple and Amazon. <laughs> that's right. I believe that's the takeaway. That's absolutely. That, that's what usually happens with most. <laughs> yeah. Stephen, hey, look, thanks very much. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to have you back in the not too distant future when you can talk. When I give us good talk, news. And then I will give you all the war stories about how we got <laughs> the finish line at that point. Awesome. Hey, Stephen, thank you so very much. All right. Great to see you guys. All right. Our thanks again to Stephen. Uh, th that was maybe my favorite interview we've done with him. Um, Agreed. I'm not sure if we might take a bit of heat for not being fierce enough bulldogs with Spence Crawford follow-up questions, but I feel like we got more out of him on it than I've heard anywhere else. And yep he wasn't going to give us any more than what he gave us. So hopefully we won't uh, get uh, get pilloried for not going hard enough on trying to get all the details. But uh, I think we I think we did what we could there. And uh, and, and I loved hearing him talk about his grandfather. Um, if, yeah. if he has talked about that before, it wasn't on our podcast, I, I don't no. believe. So uh, no. anyway, uh, we, we, we thank him again for his time, especially over the weekend, and especially when he's sick and tired of semi-deflecting questions about a certain subject. Yeah, and the thing is, the great thing about Stephen is when he has something to say, he will say it. He'll be super honest and, and upfront about it. And I thought he laid out the stall with Spence Crawford pretty well, said yeah. the whole point, in contrast to a certain other fight and fighter <laughs> right. um, that, he, that he didn't need to mention, uh, they've all decided just not to give constant updates and changes of opinions and, until it's all done. So I don't feel any less optimistic about it after talking to him than I did before. It doesn't sound like it's going to get done tomorrow, but, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it, I suppose it could, depending on when someone's listening to this and what tomorrow is exactly There to you them. are, exactly. Uh, but yes. the, the clock is, of course, ticking. So uh, if, if it's going to get done for that November date everyone has in mind, one assumes it 
would have to be pretty soon, but uh, we will wait and see. Now, now we know the fact that nobody is talking too much about it does not mean it's not going to happen. It exactly. just means they're making a point not to talk about it until it's done. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's preview one of the cards we just talked about with Steven uh, this Saturday at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. It's a Showtime Championship Boxing triple header coming at us from the arena our friend Mauro Ronaldo calls the Punch Bowl, Dignity Health Sports Park in Carson, California. This show is headlined by one of our guests on last week's podcast, Sebastian Fundora, uh, while our other guest from last week, Sebastian's sister, Gabriella, is on the undercard in a 10-rounder prior to the main broadcast. The main event pits the elder Fundora sibling, making his fifth appearance on Showtime, against Mexico's Carlos Ocampo in what looks on paper like an all-action-style matchup at 154 pounds. Acampo is 34-1 with 22 knockouts. He's 26 years old. He's on a 12-fight winning streak, albeit mostly against limited opposition. A KO-9 over Michael Zuski in March is probably his best win. And the one time he has stepped up to the top level, he got knocked out in one round by an Errol Spence body shot in 2018 on Showtime Championship Boxing. Fundora is certainly the A-side and the favorite here. He's 19-0-1 with 13 KOs, 24 years old coming off a career-best win over Erickson Lubin in a Fight of the Year candidate in April. Kieran, this is Fundora's first fight since we have all been forced to take him seriously as a 154-pound contender. Is there any risk of the hype getting ahead of the reality here and people feeling let down if he wins in unspectacular fashion? And what do you see as his ceiling at this point? Well, I mean, his last win was so spectacular and, and so ultimately emphatic um, at the end of such a terrific fight. I, I guess there's absolutely the danger of a relative letdown, especially if that was a fight where people first paid attention to him, right? Sometimes people, you know, may not really tune into a fighter as he's on the way up until he makes that sort of explosive uh, announcement that they've arrived. So if that was your first experience of Sebastian Fundora, there's always the danger that what happens subsequently may not quite live up to your your expectations. Uh, and I guess it would be surprising if the fight with Ocampo matched or even came super close to the one with Lubin because that was such a good fight. But yeah. I do think it's, you know, to, to follow on from the point that you made, it's almost certainly going to be an entertaining one, I think. I just think it's going to be a good style matchup. But yeah. um, but not every fight can be like that. Not every win can be overwhelming. You know, sometimes you have to just grind them out. Uh, sometimes you just get past your opponent. Um, and that's going to be more and more likely to be the case as you step up in competition and, and climb the ladder. But um, but yes, expectations are going to be higher of Andorra because of the way he fights, because he's a fighter rather than a boxer. Um, I, I do think, however, that this fight is likely to be another one that adds to Sebastian's growing reputation as not just a very good fighter, but an exciting one. How good he is, like what his ceiling is, I just, boy, I don't know. I'm having a bit of a hard time figuring it out because he's just so unique that there are, so, there, there are no very obvious points of comparison. Um, he's a physical specimen, of course, but the uniqueness of his physicality doesn't necessarily translate to him being an intimidating physical presence it's, it's just difficult to kind of work out um i wonder you know i i wonder if he has the nuance the subtleties in his skill set to change a fight around 
when he's up against someone who's able to prevent him from doing what he wants to do, who's able to maybe outwork or outfight him in close. Does he, I mean, he showed great adaptability against Ericsson Lubin, but without necessarily changing his style up or change, he just continued to do what he does. And that proved to be enough to overcome Lubin. Does he have enough tools to say, overcome a Jamal Charlo? I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I will say it's been a while since I more wanted a fighter to do well. And I'm sure you're with me here, but I have an innate pro Fundora bias because I like him so much. Uh, I really want him to do well. Um, but I don't know at the moment. I'd say he's probably almost destined to be a titleist. I, I, I'd be surprised if he doesn't hold some kind of a belt, uh, and probably sooner rather than later. But I also wonder, will he come up short against the very best 154-pounders? Um, you know, that said, looking at the 154-pound division right now, even though it's been very, very stacked, you know, a lot of them have taken care of each other, and there's been a bit of a thinning of the herd. And, and Charlo is really like the one guy, and Castanio is another one that would be an interesting fight, but that might match up quite well for uh, for Fandora because the two guys are just going to go toe-to-toe there. Those are the those are the two who really sort of stand as possible obstacles to him. I, I think he's a potential titleist. Is he a potential real champion and a definitive one? I, I just don't know at this stage. But I wasn't at all sure he'd get past Ericsson Lubin. And he did so incredibly well. So I think we're still learning quite a lot about Sebastian Fandora. And and I think it follows on from a point that Stephen was making that because of his nature and like he, what Stephen called that Clark Kentness about him, right. it's possible to underestimate him still a little bit, I think. And I might still be guilty of that. I, I'm not sure. I think we'll learn uh, quite a bit more on Saturday, I think. Um, but what about Ocampo? Um, you mentioned that he had that first round knockout loss to Spence. How damning or not damning is that? And and would you expect Fondora, especially given the way he fights, to just go straight after the body the way that Spence did? So the loss to Spence had damning elements, but it definitely wasn't totally damning for a few reasons. Uh, the obvious one, it was Errol Spence. You know, he's yep. probably a top five pound for pound fighter. This was 2018. Spence was 28 years old. He was hitting his prime. And in Ocampo's defense, he was only 22. And it was his first fight outside Mexico. And he was taking a massive leap up in competition. He'd never faced anyone half as good as Spence before. So now, four years later, four years older, he won't be in over his head in the same way with Fundora. And of course, a body shot first round. It can happen to anyone. Exactly. But... I noticed rewatching that fight that Ocampo did seem uncomfortable with Spence's southpaw stance. Ocampo was really reaching with his jab and falling off balance. And of course, Fundora is also a southpaw. So maybe cause for concern there. One thing I like about Ocampo is that he's an excellent body puncher himself, mm-hmm. which could serve him well because Fundora offers a lot of body to punch. Um, but, you know, you asked, do I expect Fundora to go after Ocampo's body? I do, uh, though it may not be his primary weapon. Um, But, you know, I I could certainly see the two of them delighting that Carson crowd by just trading body shots. Um, But I actually think it's going to be the southpaw right hook to the head Mm. in close that is the weapon of choice for Fundora. Ocampo is fairly tall himself. He's he's about a six footer. So, uh, you know, I, I 
don't think it's necessarily that he's made to order for Fundora's uppercut. I- I'm thinking it's that right hook. But also, yeah, lots of body punching in both directions. This should be fun. And I would think it's the type of fight that will build steam and, and get a little mm-hmm. more physical with each passing round for as long as it goes. We could see them try in a box for a round or two, but I don't imagine that'll last. It'll gradually go from boxing match to fight. Um, But, you know, before I say too much about what I think will happen, I'll sort of pull back there uh, as it's your turn to pick first in our picks competition. Uh, You have me right where you want me, leading you 67 (laughs) to 64. So what's your pick in Fundora Ocampo? It's funny, the notes that I made in terms of... um... Uh, sort of discussing how I think the fight will go and end up you basically just cut, touched on them all. Okay. Because um, I, I also wanted to say, you know, that I don't want to completely dismiss Ocampo here on the basis of that Spence knockout for all the reasons you said. He was only 22 years old against a future Hall of Famer. And yes, first round knockouts happen. Um, yeah, the interesting thing with Ocampo here is he is pretty big and strong. He looks sturdy mm-hmm. um, as well. But I also kind of wonder if that might work against him in the he's tall and sturdy but he's still not as tall and long as fundora and whereas fundora is used to having that advantage ocampo might not be used to being at that disadvantage as well um which might be interesting um i also just feel that fundora commits to his punches more than ocampo does like ocampo can do sometimes but there are other times where he just looks like he's a tiny bit tentative and a little bit wide with his punches um i don't think he's quite as good technically as, as sebastian is but I don't think he gets the torque on his punches that, that Fundora does. But I'm the same as you in that I think this is going to be not a slow burn. Um, it'll be a rapid burn, but it, but it is one that'll pick up pace. Um, I do think Ocampo might well be in the fight for several rounds as these two guys are figuring each other out. But I think that Fundora will start to establish himself here and establish his dominance. But I also think that even as Fundora sort of takes a lead, I, I kind of picture the end being very sudden. I, I don't think it's going to be like a progressive beatdown. It's going to be one in which you can see that Fundora's got the advantage. And then I see a situation where he suddenly explodes, like you said, perhaps with... Uh, a lead right hook or 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 with something to the body that just stiffens him up and then Fundora unleashes to the head. I think he'll drop Ocampo for the count in round eight. All right. Um, so Steven Espinosa talked about Fundora's power, uh, about him being a knockout puncher. I'm a little less convinced on, on that front. It's one of those things with Fundora where some fights we see it from him and some we don't. But I do right. think the styles here should give him an opportunity to land big shots and hurt Ocampo. Although I am also a tiny bit concerned about a letdown for Fundora. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone's telling him how great he is all of a sudden. He hasn't Mm -hmm. really heard that before. So I hope he doesn't take Ocampo lightly because Ocampo is no pushover from what I've seen. Uh, But like you, I'm picking Fundora. Like you, I'm picking him by knockout. I think we'll see some excellent two-way action before Fundora Drops Ocampo with maybe that short inside right hook I was talking about. Uh, I could see, you said uh, put him down for the count. I could see more like a knockdown, a follow-up attack, towel thrown in, something like Mm -hmm. that. So I'm going Sebastian Fundora a little quicker than you, KO6. Okay. Um, In the co-feature, another Hispanic Heritage Month appropriate bout, uh, a 12-rounder at middleweight. We have a couple of familiar faces as Carlos Adames of the Dominican Republic, 21-1, 16 KOs, meets Juan Macias Montiel of Mexico, 23-5-2. All 23 wins by knockout. 
Both fighters are 28 years old. We last saw Montiel on Showtime in June 2021, where he was widely expected to get completely steamrolled by Jamal Charlo, but instead managed to last the 12-round distance, but dropped a wide decision. Uh, Adamez, on the other hand, won his most recent Showtime fight, when he scored a mild upset majority decision over Sergei Derevyanchenko last December. Both of these fighters are righties who will switch to Southport at times. Both of them have shown great power, at least when facing lesser opposition. Eric, how do you see their styles meshing and what is your pick? So I think the meshing of the styles largely depends on how awkward Montiel wants to be in this Mm -hmm. one. He's kind of gangly. He can be defensive-minded at times, but he is tough as hell when he wants to be. His fight against Jamal Charlo was a study in a dude refusing to let the punches hurt him, just deciding, I am not getting knocked out tonight. Um, He's a warrior. And he does have power, and he's awkward, but I'm not sure he's very good. Uh, um, Adamas is clearly the higher class, more skilled fighter. Against Revyanchenko, he was extremely effective when he did go to the southpaw stance. He showed very good hand speed. At the same time, he really faded in the second half of that fight. So in terms of the styles here, you have the awkwardness of Montiel and the question with Adamas of, of whether he might try to pace himself differently this time. So I can't really guarantee action here. I have to go into non-Showtime shill mode on this one. Um, I mean, I I think it's a competitive matchup. It's a fine piece of matchmaking on that front, but I'm just not sure the action will be all that steady. So in terms of a pick, I do believe Adamas' speed and skill will carry him through, but it won't be easy. And if Charlo couldn't stop Montiel, I don't think Adamas will. So I think we're looking at a distance fight and a competitive decision win for Adamas. I'll say unanimous decision scores in the 116-112 kind of range. Uh, so that's my pick. What's your pick for this one? Yeah, once again, he stole my notes. Um, <laughs> look, I, I just think Adamas is on a different level here. Uh, he's faced better opposition. He's beaten a higher quality of opposition. I, I just think he's the more solid all-round boxer. Um but that said, Montiel can be awkward. He can be difficult. He is tough. I think the only time he's been knocked down was when he was knocked out um, in his in one of his, his five defeats. Um, I, so I don't think Adamas is going to blow him away at all. I think he's going to have to work for it. But I think it's going to be one of those very clear cases that one guy is clearly the better one, but is just having to grind out the win against yeah. uh, a very awkward uh, opponent. Uh, I wildly differ from your suggestion. I actually put down a 117-111 as the likely <laughs> score here, but that's kind of what I think is going to happen, and I think it'll be across board. I across the board, I agree with you that it's uh, going to be a unanimous decision for Adamas. We should we should probably figure out some sort of scoring tweak where if uh, if the scores are unanimous 116-112s or 117-111s, <laughs> one of us gets a bonus point. Or exactly. Something. Yeah. All right. So the opening bout is a 12 rounder for a flyweight belt. It's a rematch to a great fight we saw in February as the co-feature on Showtime to Hector Garcia's stunning win over Chris Colbert. Uh, In February, Drewin Ancajas was a six to one favorite over Fernando Martinez, but it was the little known Argentine Martinez who won the fight in convincing fashion by scores of 118, 110 twice and 117, 111. Martinez is 14-0 with eight KOs, while the Filipino Ancajas, after suffering his first loss in 10 years, is 33-2-2 with 22 knockouts. Kieran, the first fight ended up not all that close. 
Is Ankahas making a mistake demanding the rematch, or is there a path to making this fight look different from the first? Uh, and in answering that question, let me know what your pick is. Well, it's pretty darn rare to turn around a fight that you lost that widely, that comprehensively. Um, it's possible, of course. Joe Lewis did it, for example. But um, like you said, even though it was a fun fight and an exciting fight, it did end up being fairly one-sided. Uh, Martinez really ended up taking it to Ankahas once he got going. But but I do understand why Ankahas would want to take the rematch. He said he botched his weight cut and that that made him weaker. Um Possibly he was overlooking Martinez because, like you said, he was such a big favorite um, and he was on a roll. Uh, a lot of people were looking at him as, as, as sort of trying to force his way into to the picture there at the, the top of that division. Um, he probably just feels he had a bad night at the office and given another opportunity that he can turn it all around. And he is of a high enough quality that maybe he can. Um, he actually did OK for the first few rounds there of that first fight, he even caught Martinez's attention early. But once Martinez got into a rhythm... The punches were flowing, and there's very little that Ankahas could do to prevent it. Um, so I think what Ankahas has to do is prevent Martinez from getting into that rhythm. And what he needs to do is to keep moving, show angles, not give Martinez the opportunity to start throwing the extraordinary number of punches that he did in their first fight. And I suspect early on he might well be able to do that, and we might, as neutrals, be relatively disappointed compared to the first fight. But I also think that really that kind of stick and move and constant uh, uh, being on the balls of your feet kind of thing isn't really Ancajas's natural game. And I think that as the fight goes on and Martinez, you know, maybe starts landing some body punches, he's able to get Ancajas to stand a bit more in front of him. It will take a bit longer than the first fight to get going. But I think once it does, Martinez is going to, perhaps after falling behind a little bit early on, come back and overhaul uh, Ancajas down the second uh, half of the fight. Um, I do think he'll eventually catch him and he'll overtake him. I do think this is going to go the distance as well, but I think it'll be much closer than the first fight. And you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb and I'll say that this time it will be a split decision win for Martinez. Okay. Um, boy, this, this was such a fun fight the first time. Several round of the year candidates just a little too lopsided in the end for serious fight of the year consideration. Sure. But what a fun 12 rounds that was. And what a revelation Martinez was. He was the classic unknown quantity who, who looked good on YouTube against nondescript opposition. He looked talented, but you didn't know for sure. And then he got in the ring with Ancajas and after three or four rounds, it was okay. Yeah, this kid has it. Mm -hmm. um, and Ancajas ultimately took a lot of punishment. So I said afterward that I didn't want to see an immediate rematch. At least they waited seven and a half months, giving Ankahas time to recover. So I'm a little more okay with it than I was in the moment thinking, you know, back in the ring five or six months later with this rematch he wants. They gave it a little more time, at least. I still ultimately don't see this going well for Ankahas. I know Martinez is technically older. He's 31 to age 30 for Ankahas, but he's a lot younger in ring years. He's dynamic. He's coming into his own. And I think this time he becomes the first to stop on Cajas. My pick is Martinez by TKO in the ninth round. All righty. Um, earlier in the day on Saturday, thankfully not conflicting with the Showtime card, from London and on zone, super middleweight Chris Eubank Jr. meets welterweight Conor Ben at a catchweight of 158 pounds. The chief storylines here are obvious. Sons of iconic rivals meeting in, a, in the ring in a fight that's drawing massive interest in Britain. And the question of whether it's a bad idea for one or both fighters to meet some 10 pounds away from their preferred weight. Eric, 
Does this fight excite you? Bother you? Neither? Both? I'd say I'm a little more on the bother side mm. of that line. Uh, now, the Eubanks Sr.-Nigel Ben rivalry, that was just before I started covering boxing, so I don't have any emotional connection to that drawing me into this one. To me, it's two recognizable names, two good fighters whose dads were excellent fighters. It's fine. I, I'm interested and intrigued, not quite pumped. As for the weight situation, which has some people up in arms... I guess I'd say, you know, if they were going to fight, I think they found the right weight to do it at, yeah. where they should be about equally disadvantaged. Um, but there's definitely enhanced physical danger, either because Eubank is going to totally drain himself making weight, or because Ben could get badly hurt by a guy this much bigger than he is. And ultimately, what that all means is that whoever wins, they won't get full credit. There will be an asterisk attached, either... Ben won because Eubank was a shell of himself, or Eubank won because he was up against a welterweight. Man, this this is right on the borderline between quality fight between world-class boxers yeah. and ridiculous freak show. Um, yeah. But I guess I kind of got to see it, you know? Uh, the crowd should be great. The atmosphere is going to be wild. And these size mismatches, even an absurd one like Floyd Mayweather versus Logan Paul, they, they keep you on the edge of your seat. Um <laughs> I don't love this fight, but I'm intrigued by it. And if they can make big money together, I get saying to hell with weight classes. Um, but I do, of course, hope they both come out healthy. Because if not, this is a Tua Tagovailoa moment for boxing. I don't know how close mm, you've been watching yeah. the NFL the past week, but you know the league and the Dolphins should have known better than to throw him out there. Yeah. Same here. Everyone identified the problems with this fight beforehand. So if somebody gets hurt... It's unboxing. So, yeah. yeah, I'm a little more negative than positive on this. How about you? Is the Brit in you excited for this one? No. No. Um, and again, you've been reading my notes. Um, I mean, that's <laughs> what I do. <laughs> I, of course, was, was, was a long time before I covered boxing when, when the first two fights happened. But I was a fan. And mm -hmm. um, I was particularly a Nigel Benn fan. I was never really into Eubank sort of preening and posturing, but they gave us a pair of really, really good, good contests back in the nineties. But there's no reason for Ben and Eubank Jr. to be facing each other now, other than their names, right? There's one guy isn't standing in the way of the other's shot for championship glory in their particular divisions. Um, like you said, they're not even, they're not really very close to being in the same weight division. Um, Given that Ben's a rapidly improving young welterweight, I would have really liked to have seen him continue his progress. He looks like he might be genuinely very good. Um, and if he gets hurt, you know, against a larger man like Eubank, I just don't know what that does for him or for his career. Like, I just, it's it's potentially a real setback and an unnecessary one. Um I guess the upside is higher for Ben. He is the smaller guy. He's the younger, less experienced guy. It's a big scalp if he takes it, notwithstanding the asterisk. Um, the downside is theoretically much bigger for Eubank. If he loses, not only does he lose to a Ben, which his dad didn't, he loses to a relatively inexperienced welterweight. And and that's, you know, going to be tough to rebound from. Um, I don't entirely hate it, um, although I'm not enthused by it. I guess the reason I'm not mad that it's happening is at the end of the day, as I have to remind myself, it is prize fighting. Um, and this is going to be a good prize 
financially for both mm. guys. Uh, I would have just liked to have seen Ben in particular continue his progress more conventionally. Um, but I do get it. Sometimes you just have to take the opportunities. And like you said, this is going to be a wild night um, in the UK. I'm not entirely, I don't loathe it, but I'm not tremendously comfortable with the whole situation. Yeah. Uh, all right. It is time for the tweet of the week. And I actually have a couple this time, Eric. Two very okay. different tweets. Uh, there's a runner up. Uh, you may remember last week. I actually mentioned both Ravishing Rick Rude and Antonio Inoki <laughs> right. in the podcast. And specifically with regard to the latter, I noted that he was still alive and might be a suitable exhibition foe for Floyd Mayweather. Ha ha, how we laughed. Um, fast forward a couple of days, and in a fabulous piece of synchronicity, Twitter user at Black underscore Gatsby, whose handle is Ravishing Rick Rude, Whoa. tweeted at me, what did you do to Inoki? He was in Japan minding his business and then... Dot, dot, dot. Yes, just a couple of days after I commented on Enoki being alive, he was dead at the age of 79. Thank you to Ravishing Rick Rude for calling me out on that. But in all seriousness, rest in peace to Enoki, a legend of the wrestling ring. Um, but because I'm always telling everyone to be kind at the end of our podcasts, I figured we should also have a kinder tweet okay. as the actual winner of this week's Tweet of the Week. So I've picked one also that isn't attempting to be funny or incisive or brilliant. It just made me smile. It's from former welterweight titleist Kermit Cintron, who on Twitter is at Cintron underscore Kermit, because Kermit Cintron was taken. I don't know. I guess. But um, <laughs> if you've been wondering where he's been, he had a nice update. Uh, he, he wrote, for those that are wondering what I've been doing after retirement, second year in school, working on my science and health, in parentheses, radiography degree. Um, mm. So... I just love hearing about Xboxes doing well for themselves. We so often hear tales of things going south for fighters once they leave the ring, of money disappearing and hangers-on disappearing along with it and, and going down bad paths. It just makes me happy to hear of those who are doing well. So there it is. That's it. That's the tweet. That wins. That's great. I was unaware of that. I guess I don't follow Kermit on Twitter and didn't have anyone retweeted into my timeline that I noticed, but uh, that's really great to hear. And yeah. look, I mean, if... If things don't end up going the way he envisions with his schooling, he can just uh, dive right on out of the classroom and onto the floor. There it is. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, but seriously, good. best of luck to Kermit Cintron. I, I, I hope he, uh, if he happens to be listening... Sorry about the joke. Had to do it, but uh, but it is great to hear that he's uh, moving on to uh, other ventures and getting his education in other ways. And uh, yeah, great for him. Yeah, indeed. All right. Uh, time now for the outside the ring news. And you're welcome, everyone. We're going to just ignore whatever the heck is going on with Tyson Fury and his daily reversals of what he'd said the day before. Our news main event, however, is no less maddening. Uh, the International Boxing Association, the IBA, which governs amateur boxing, had an opportunity for a challenge to Russian Umar Kremlev's role as president but voted against permitting a challenge by a lopsided vote of 106 to 36. We'll spare you all the inside baseball details of the conflicts between the IBA and the IOC, but the important upshot is this. After the IOC oversees boxing at the 2024 Olympics in Paris, many now believe boxing won't be an Olympic sport starting at the 2028 Games in Los Angeles. If that indeed comes to pass, Kieran, how devastating a blow is that to both amateur boxing and to professional boxing? Well, it remains to be seen, of course, but the potential impact is enormous. Um, I mean, just think for a start, how many championship boxers or how many 
good contenders first went to the Olympics and either meddled or, or didn't. Uh, the, the list is almost endless. Um, and look, obviously not everybody gets to go to the Olympics or even the Olympic trials. But, you know, you wonder without the prospect of that, um, will boxers want to persist with their amateur careers or will they turn professional earlier than they otherwise might? And And if they do, what would that mean for the quality of boxing? Because you can just tell often when someone has had an extensive amateur background. There are just so many things come so much more naturally to someone with an extensive grounding in the amateur side of things. Uh, and I think for me, that's one of the biggest worries, perhaps the biggest worries. I mean, yes, it's yet another embarrassing stain on a sport that is one big embarrassing stain. But yes, amateur boxers would be denied the opportunity to earn Olympic gold, and that would be a huge loss. There will still be other international tournaments, but I do worry about what that means for the professional game. And one way in particular, look, for example, Britain has funded its uh, amateur boxing program really well for over a decade now, but a lot of that was in anticipation. It started of the 2012 Olympics, and a lot of where Britain decides to fund its sports is where can we win the most Olympic medals? If that's no longer an Olympic sport, does that get taken away? And I mean, look at what the growth in British amateur boxing has meant to British professional boxing and what that has meant on the world stage. Um, you know, so so that's really what, what I'm concerned about. And we might not notice that in 2028 or 2029, but we'll notice it. Yeah. Uh, and it's also what a tragedy for the women's game. Mm. Um, look at the vastly increased quality of women's boxing now. It's no accident that folks like Clarissa Shields and Katie Taylor are at the forefront and the likes of Marlon Esparza and Nicola Adams and Natasha Jonas um, have been behind them. I, I really worry about the diminishment of opportunities there, really, especially for women's boxing. But if it can shake loose the appalling levels of corruption at the highest levels of the amateur game, maybe it'll be a case of short-term pain for long-term gain, but the IBA vote suggests that we're a long way from that just yet. Yeah, well said. Um, our news undercard is the proverbial grab bag this week. Uh, we touched on Floyd Mayweather in his exhibition fights with Stephen Espinosa, um, and Floyd's next such appearance has been announced for November 13th when he takes on Deji. Do you think, is that how it's pronounced? Deji? I think I heard someone else say Deji. Deji, uh, okay. We are we are allowed to not know how to Are we being these old names. here? Well, yeah, we're, we're just being washed and old, right? <laughs> we're not being old. We are old, Kieran. <laughs> um, he's what the youngs call a YouTuber. <laughs> that doesn't brother... make you seem old at all when you say the youngs. <laughs> um, and he's the brother of YouTuber turned eh, sort of boxer, I guess, KSI. Uh, these are all lines that I never imagined I would ever say in my life, but only onward. Um, Two pieces of news regarding top middleweights. An alphabet group has ordered a fight between veterans Gennady Golovkin and Eris Landy Lara. And Demetrius Andrade has pulled out of a planned November fight with Zach Parker, which went to purse bids, but the bid was so small that Andrade was only going to receive a guarantee of $183,000. Uh, a fighter we've seen on Showbox, 140-pounder Richardson Hitchens, has left PBC and signed a three-fight deal with Matchroom. Uh, flyweight titleist Sonny Edwards' next defense has been announced. It will be November 11th in Sheffield against Felix Alvarado. Uh, according to Boxing Scene, former light heavyweight champ Alexander Wojtyk, who retired after his TKO loss to Arta Betabiev three years ago, is planning a comeback at age 35. That makes me a little sad. And lastly, from a retired Ukrainian boxer to a retired Russian boxer, former heavyweight titleist Nikolai Valuev has been summoned to enlist in Vladimir Putin's army. And Valuev, who went into politics, 
after his boxing career ended and is indeed aligned with Putin's party, said that he does plan to enlist. Like I said, Eric, there's an incredible variety of uh, (laughs) items in that grab bag of news uh, stories. What interests you the most among them all? Uh, So I guess a bunch of these fall into the category of okay, we reported the news, there's not a lot of analysis to offer, like Floyd versus Deji, Edwards Alvarado, Richardson Hitchens. I have nothing to add on any of those. The value of thing, I mean, look, he's on the wrong side of history, as they say, uh, but we know that, unfortunately, a lot of people are on the wrong side of history, and they Mm -hmm. either don't know it or they don't care. I have no serious commentary on this, so instead I'll offer silly commentary. uh, That my first thought, when I heard of seven-foot-plus monster Valuev being drafted into the army, I pictured 1-1, the I giant. I it! Me too. <laughs> you had the same thought? Yeah. yeah. So anyone who doesn't know, 1-1 is the, the giant in the wildling army on Game of Thrones. Uh, we'll see if that's how Valuev is deployed in Ukraine. I guess I probably shouldn't make light of this, but, uh, you know... Our listeners should know what they're getting at this point. Um, (laughs) Golovkin-Lara goes back to last week's Make the Match. Mm. If Triple G is going to fight on and isn't just looking for an easy farewell fight, this is a good matchup. Should be crowd-pleasing with the modern-day version of Lara. I'm good with it, especially if it sort of is treated as something of a loser-leaves-town match. Uh, Mm. I don't know if that's how they'll view it, but that's kind of how I would view it. Uh, And, of course, that's if it even happens. Golovkin has every right to just ignore the alphabet group if there's another fight he sees as a better option. The last thing I want to comment on is Demetrius Andrade. What a sad waste his career has been. And it's not all his fault. He's certainly been avoided, gotten unlucky at times, etc. But a lot of it is also his fault. And he is now 34 years old. Mm. He turned pro 14 years ago this month. He was 20 at the time. Now he's 34 and still hasn't really fought anybody mm. his biggest slash best opponent was either Vanus Martirosian or Machic Sulensky uh, and now he's having fights go to purse bids where the winning bid is just like 300 grand or so mm. I don't blame him for bailing on this fight it's a waste of his time either way e- either fighting Zach Parker or not fighting at all either way we would be lamenting the waste of Andrade's time but wow I I can't quite think of any other career like this where yeah. a guy with this much talent has treaded water for this long without testing himself against a championship level guy. It's just sad. Um, but I guess he's made a decent amount of money and never had to take punishment. Uh, it's not the worst thing the, the, for his career to be have gone this way in certain senses, but right. legacy wise, you know, 14 years and almost nothing to show for it so far. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's wrap up the show by talking about some fighters who left behind some serious legacies. Uh, We finished with the top five list. It was a straightforward assignment you gave me, the all-time top five lightweights. So I'm judging them based on what they did at 135 pounds, not on the totality of their careers. Right. If they were all-time great fighters who just passed briefly through lightweight, they don't make the cut here. Um, Two big picture notes. Uh, One, this list skews old-timey. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think there's anyone since Shane Mosley who even warrants top 20 consideration, never mind top five. You know, like Mayweather and Pacquiao didn't stay long enough, nor did Terrence Crawford. Lomachenko wasn't quite dominant enough or long-reigning yeah. enough at 135. And the second thing, there are four fighters from distinct eras who I think you can make a case for at number one. Uh, it doesn't mean those have to be your top four, 
but I think anyone outside of those four, you can't reasonably make a case that they could be the greatest lightweight of all time. But there are four that I think you can make a case for. Okay, on to my list, which let me first say, maybe I'm a modern boxing historian, if that's not too much of an oxymoron, um, but I'm not a true boxing historian. So I largely base this on the research of others like Steve yeah. Farhood, Cliff Rold, Patrick Cotter. I read their arguments, synthesized and considered them, and ended up with my own top five list. So here we go. At number five, I have Ike Williams, who was, by a small margin, the best of a great lightweight era in the late 40s and early 50s that included his rivals, Bob Montgomery and Bo Jack. Williams reigned for six years over a division with that sort of Hall of Fame talent. He knocked out Montgomery in six rounds in 1947, stopped Bo Jack in six rounds in 48. He fought Jack three more times, ultimately going 3-0-1 against him, although not all at lightweight. But at 135, he also beat Juan Zurita, Enrique Bolanos. It's almost a coin flip for the fifth spot between Williams and... Uh, I'll just give away my top honorable mention now, sure. uh, Tony Canzanieri. That almost <laughs> a coin flip, but thanks to Williams focusing a little bit more of his prime on the lightweight division than Canzanieri did, I'm giving the edge to one of the hardest lightweight punchers ever, Ike Williams. Yeah, and I have to say, I had basically, you know, obviously I didn't have to dig into it with the same depth because I gave you the assignment. Right. Um, but uh, shortly after looking into it myself, I was glad that I had given you the assignment. Um, <laughs> Um, and, and I and I sort of had a very similar approach. And for me, there is a. It, it'll be interesting to see what your top four is, because for me there were three and perhaps four that were clearly slightly separated, okay. and the rest were awfully close. And I actually plumped four Kanzanari at number five, sure. with Williams and oh, I might as well mention it in case he's in your top four. Uh, Lou Ambers, um, among others, just tucked in really close there. Bit of a coin flip, but but yeah, I, I went for Kanzanari there. But but I'm in the same position here as you. I'm largely synthesizing the arguments of others here. Right. Okay. Uh, so I go next from a puncher in Williams to very much not a puncher, but quite possibly the slickest boxer in lightweight history, and a guy who, if you want to tell me he should be number one, I can understand the case for it. Purnell Sweet Pea Whitaker. He was probably at his very best at 135. His only loss at the weight was an all-time robbery against Jose Luis Ramirez, later dominantly avenged. And though Whitaker's reign was somewhat brief because he had to wait a little while to win the title, a la Marvin Hagler at middleweight, he was the best lightweight in the world from probably the minute he turned pro in 1984 until he moved up to 140 in 1992. On his lightweight resume, Roger Mayweather, Greg Haugen, Ramirez, Freddie Pendleton, Anthony Jones, Jorge Paez, and most impressively, fellow Hall of Famer Azuma Nelson when Nelson was still in his prime. It's so hard to compare eras, and like I said, the four fighters with a case for number one fought in distinct eras. There's no mm -hmm. overlap. So you want to put Purnell higher? I won't argue. But in terms of pure lightweight greatness and accomplishment, he lands at number four for me. So I'm guessing we do have the same individuals in the top four then, because I put Sweet Pea at number four as well, okay. uh, for all the same reasons, simply because he should have had a perfect record at a lightweight, frankly. Um, and 
he was untouchable for for a decade and it was only when he really came to a moved up to a higher weight and his lifestyle got the better of him that he started to lose so i think when you look at like you mentioned the quality of his opposition and just how dominant he was mm-hmm. uh, i and, and just the way he boxed i think pernell whitaker would have been a lightweight great in any era so yeah i've got him also at number four okay um i mentioned the challenge of comparing eras we go back now to the dawn of the 20th century. Uh, a guy who I learned is credited in some corners with inventing the uppercut. That's how far back we're going. The uppercut <laughs> yeah. may not have existed before this guy started throwing it. It's the old master, Joe Gans, who had two lightweight title reigns between 1902 and 1908 without losing the title in the ring in between. So you could say he made 14 consecutive defenses, even if there was an interruption, during which he was off winning the welterweight title. Uh, but he stopped Frank Ernst in one round to win the title and didn't lose at 133 pounds, which was then the lightweight limit until battling Nelson beat him in 08. And he had famously beaten Nelson by disqualification prior to that. Again, near impossible to compare the eras, but for length of reign, number of defenses, Mm -hmm. and just being the dominant lightweight for the better part of a decade, I put Joe Gans at number three. The only suspense that remains is who we have it to and who we have it one. Um, and I really thought hard about putting Joe Gans higher. Sure. Um, just when you look at the impact that he had and how, and I had also learned that, I didn't know that before, that he was credited with, with inventing the uppercut, but also that really he set the template for so much of modern boxing, apparently, in terms of ring generalship and fundamentals and footwork and Turned pro at 21, he died at 35, and had somewhere in the region of 170 fights in between, mm-hmm. um, of which he won the vast majority, uh, while having to contend with racism, and while apparently on occasion having his managers basically tell him to, you know, to to dive. Uh, remarkable, remarkable career. It, it actually has me wanting to learn a very great deal more about Joe Gans, I have yeah. to say. Yeah, and, and again, he's he's someone who... If someone who's really done all their homework and their research and thought about it tells me he was the greatest lightweight of all time, yeah. I really I really wouldn't put up a strong argument against Agreed. that. Um, at number two, only slightly more modern than Gans, the dominant lightweight of my grandparents' childhood and uh, rivaling my grandparents for athleticism among Jewish people, uh, <laughs> Benny Leonard. Uh, you look over any old list of the greatest pound-for-pound fighters ever, and Leonard is high on it. Uh, Burt Sugar once placed him sixth on the list of the top 100 fighters ever. He was seventh on an ESPN list a while back, etc. And lightweight was the only division in which he was champion, reigning from 1917 to 25 and making eight defenses. He was almost everyone's number one lightweight of all time until someone else came along some 50 years later. Uh, Leonard beat Freddie Welsh for the title in 1917 engaged in a ridiculous number of non-title fights, uh, beat the likes of Johnny Kilbane, Rocky Kansas, Lou Tendler twice before retiring as champ and is regarded as one of the most clever boxers ever, but could also punch. His record shows 69 knockouts. Uh, Like Whitaker, like Gans, Leonard has a perfectly strong case as the greatest lightweight ever. I have him at number two. And I had him at number one. Okay. Um, But again, yes, coin flip. And and, and to, to a large extent, this was... You know, there are, it's it's very easy to have. I could easily have had Gans at number one. I could easily have had my number two, who is clearly your number one right. at number one. Um, the amazing thing about Leonard, that essentially for like two decades, he was essentially unbeaten. There were there was one DQ and some newspaper decisions that right. you know that would, that was just a, a feature of that time. 
That's an extraordinary amount of time to go essentially undefeated, especially when you think how many times these guys were fighting. It's mm-hmm. just remarkable, really. And also sort of a feature of the time, I found several conflicting reports as to how many fights he'd had. It, it's right. somewhere between around 100 and 200 and something, depending on how many of these different fights and these newspaper decisions and so on and so forth you include. But um, clearly a remarkable, remarkable fighter. I have him at number one. No problem with having him at number two or indeed at number three. And I know exactly who you've got at number one. And I have no problem with that either. (laughs) Yeah, you should know. I wanted to go maybe non-obvious, maybe a little contrarian with a Gans or a Leonard or something. But I ultimately couldn't do it. Uh, The greatest lightweight of all time, in my view, is probably the one that seems the most obvious pick to most of Mm. our listeners. Manos de Piedra, Roberto Duran. If Benny Leonard was the clever master who could also punch spectacularly, Duran was sort of the reverse, the stone-cold assassin who would rip your head off, but could also outbox just about anyone if called upon to. He dominated the lightweight division from 1972 to 78. He never lost at lightweight. His only defeat in the 70s was an over-the-weight non-title 10-rounder against Esteban de Jesus, later avenged twice in title fights. He beat Ken Buchanan for the title. Not a ton of great names among his 135-pound defenses. De Jesus and Edwin Virouette were the best of them, but he didn't duck anyone. It just wasn't the deepest era. Uh, but Duran dominated it violently, really had it all before he started to become beatable at higher weights in the 80s. So maybe I'm being boring. I'm putting Duran at number one, as most people I think do. It's far from an open and shut case, but uh, I do think, for me, by a narrow margin over Leonard Gans and Whitaker, he's the greatest lightweight ever. I don't think ever having anything to do with Roberto Duran could, by definition, ever be boring, so I okay. think that's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> I, I totally, totally fine with that. And, um, you know, it's funny, you talk about Ken Buchanan, and, and, and I feel like... Honestly, that in many ways, that sort of like epitomizes who who Duran could be as a fighter. I'm sure Buchanan couldn't walk upright for 40 years after after that fight. Um, <laughs> 40 full years, huh? That's a long. Uh, oh yeah, at least at long least. after um, effect. <laughs> um, and you know what? On a on a total aside, like it has nothing. Like I always admired him as a fighter, and 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 loved you know just that raw aggression, and and loved his late career boost you know when he beat Ryan Barkley and all of this kind of stuff but totally unrelated to his, where he places in the grand scheme of things or or as a fighter when I then met him for the first time a few years ago and found that he was actually now just the sweet puppy dog <laughs> yep and then honestly the kings yeah listening to him on the kings that we talked about last year I like I have come to just admire him and like him on so many other levels now um, that that wherever one considers him as a lightweight, he's clearly one of the very greatest of all fighters mm-hmm. on any list and uh, a fighter that I'm privileged to have at least seen the latter part of his career off, I must say. Um, so my honorable mention, uh, it's been a long pod. I'm not going to go into detail. Oh, yes, I'm just right. going to kind of, I'm just going to kind of run through the names. Uh, Canzanari, as I said, is probably my number six, Carlos Ortiz, yep. Henry Armstrong, who, who just didn't fight at lightweight long enough to make the mm. top five, but obviously like Mayweather and Pacquiao, he had top five ability. Mm. Uh, Lou Ambers, you mentioned Freddie Welsh, Packy yep. McFarland. And I'll give a mention to one guy whose lightweight reign I covered. Uh, I did mention him at the top, Shane Mosley. He probably belongs toward the bottom of the top 20, really. Um, But he was a dominant lightweight, eight defenses, eight KOs. 
this was where Sugar Shane was at his absolute best. Yeah, uh, same same here. I also put Shane in there. I thought he deserved to mention. Did you mention Chavez? Did you feel like he deserved I to? didn't, and I thought about it, and then I looked at what he did at lightweight, and it, it was relatively brief that he mm. was that he was at 135, so I didn't quite consider him... Uh, you know, he's got to be in your top 20 or so somewhere. And he right. may be even ahead of Mosley. I was just kind of forcing Mosley in there to yeah. mention a guy who's lightweight reign I covered. Yeah. All right. That will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with post-fight analysis of the Showtime card and the Eubank Ben fight, while we look ahead to a very busy October 15th slate featuring Wilder Hellenius, Haney Cambosis 2, and Shields Marshall. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe. Be kind. Be well.